0: Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. One of my favorite things about working on this show has been learning the histories of badass women I'd often, unfortunately, never heard of. And it is a shame because their stories and contributions are so inspiring. Back when I was a video producer for this show, I, my favorite series we had, as I have mentioned before, was something called Herstory. Um, it, it's just I'm a big history fan, and I love learning more about these badass women. And one of my favorite historical figures I've learned about through working on this show is Shirley Chisholm. So in honor of President's Day weekend here in the United States... Here's a classic episode delving into the life and legacy of Shirley Chisholm.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, you know those times when we're researching for Stuff Mom Never Told You and we learn about a woman that excites us Mm -hmm. and inspires us so much. A, it's giving me goosebumps right now, (laughs) and we can't wait to talk about it in the podcast studio, but also we just want to tell everyone Mm -hmm. about her, like uh, Polly Murray. Oh, yeah. (sighs) Shirley Chisholm. I mean, in such a political time as this reading about shirley chisholm was such a breath of fresh air yeah but also a, a little bit of a, a a disappointment that she's not still around for me to uh, hug
2: yeah call up on the telephone yeah and say thanks shirley yeah write a number of
1: thank you letters to just for just for everything Because y'all, Shirley was a badass, and you need to know who she is, and you need to tell everybody you know about who she was.
2: Yeah, unfortunately for all of us, she was a woman ahead of her time. I mean, fortunately, because we have such a great story to tell about her. But unfortunately, because, well, being so ahead of her time, she was sort of kept out of the positions that she would have done so much great work in. And so, of course, Shirley Chisholm was the first African-American woman in Congress and the first black woman to run for a major party's nomination for president, among many, many other firsts. But something that's really kind of beautiful and poetic about her is that in an interview in her later years, she would say, When I die, I want to be remembered as a woman who lived in the 20th century and who dared to be a catalyst for change. I don't want to be remembered as the first black woman who went to Congress. And I don't even want to be remembered as the first woman who happened to be black who ran for the presidency. I want to be remembered as a woman who fought for change in the 20th century. And so this episode is sort of a love letter To Shirley, to not only educate you, our listeners, and to educate ourselves, and to provide this sort of inspirational figure for women in politics and in this country in general, but really to honor her memory and to tell you her story. And part of us honoring her is
1: really diving into her complexity, her passion, and her brilliance that history just has not given her enough credit for. We need to know more about Shirley than the things, the individual things that she accomplished. We need to know how and why she did that. Um, And also, I mean, (laughs) Shirley is just fabulous
2: for her gift of gab. Yeah, um some of her quotes like I don't know. I mean, we literally could deliver this entire podcast in just Shirley Chisholm quotes. Um because she was such an amazing figure for women in general. She was a staunch feminist in addition to being proud of her blackness, she was also proud of her womanness. Um, And she said at one point, the emotional, sexual and psychological stereotyping of females begins when the doctor says it's a girl. How ahead of her time is that?
1: You know, who uh, quotes Shirley Chisholm quite a lot when he's talking about his own feminism. Is President Barack Obama? That's right. Who also posthumously awarded her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Yeah, in twenty fifteen, which says so much about the respect and admiration that he has for her. Mm-hmm. Um, which just makes me makes me already miss him being in office. Um, but let's go back to Brooklyn. In 1924, uh, Shirley Anita St. Hill was born on November 20th of that year in Brooklyn to Charles St. Hill, who was a factory worker from Guyana, and Ruby Seal St. Hill, who was a seamstress from Barbados, and Shirley was the oldest of four daughters.
2: Yeah. So she was around a lot of amazing women. It's no surprise that she grew up like all pro lady power. (laughs) Um, But from the age of three to 10, she actually lived on her grandparents farm in Barbados in order to get a British education. Her parents remained back in Brooklyn. They were working to make a living in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood during the Depression. And they basically figured like, here, you can go live a happy, wonderful life with your grandparents, getting an education while we work here. And so once she came back to Brooklyn, she aces public school and ends up getting accepted to Oberlin and Vassar. She opts to go to Brooklyn College on scholarship. And here we see one of the first instances, and I love to talk about mentors and teachers and things like that on the podcast to show how kids get inspired to do things. Obviously, she was not a kid at the point that she was at college, but Her political science professor, Louis Warsaw, encouraged her to consider a career in politics because of her, quote, quick mind and debating skills. But even at the time, Shirley's talking to Professor Lewis, and she says, you know, I'm not so sure because I've got this double handicap. That was her quote. I've got this double handicap of being both black and a woman. But, of course, that double handicap doesn't stop her from being active in college. She joins the debate team. And when a social club on campus denies black students entry, she starts her own. It's called apathia. And apathia actually stood for in pursuit of the highest in all. Can we start an apotheia club?
1: Can we? Yeah. Can we get a chapter? Yeah. I don't know how you do that, but I, <laughs> I but I think of, we'll just start with a framed portrait of Shirley Chisholm. Yeah. And a bottle of wine. That's right. <laughs> um, so from there, in 1946, Shirley graduates cum laude with a sociology degree, and she begins working as a nursery school teacher. A few years later, in 1949, she marries Conrad Q. Chisholm, who's a private investigator. Uh, And in 1952, she gets her master's in early childhood education from Columbia while working as a teacher and ends up becoming the director of two daycare centers. And early childhood education
2: ends up becoming her entry point. Into politics. Yeah, basically, because a couple years later in 1960, she becomes a consultant to the New York City Division of Daycare. So there you see her straddling that line of public life and also still being in the education world. And so... Around this same time, Shirley has joined a local Democratic club that had been working really hard to root out the white leaders of the bed neighborhood who they said were ignoring black residents who were the majority in that neighborhood. And <laughs> they made a wonderful decision that ended up being terrible for them. But in order to shut her up, like, God, this woman with her confidence and smarts and brilliance to shut her up. They put her on the board of directors and she's like, "Uh, yeah, okay, that's going to shut me up. She's Shirley. So of course she doesn't. They end up removing her from the post because she was so vocal and so active in the community. They were like, oh, we did the exact wrong thing. (laughs) They couldn't handle the chism. You can't handle the chism. And uh, in 1962, Uh, The group actually got a black man elected to the state assembly, Thomas R. Jones. But in 1964, Jones actually decides, hey, I'm going to run for a judgeship. So the community was like, hey, you know that Shirley woman? We like her. So she ends up replacing Jones, making her the second ever African-American woman elected to the New York state legislature. Now, keep in mind, if you've listened to our previous podcast episode
1: on arch conservative anti feminist Phyllis Schlafly, 1964 is the year her star starts to rise because she helped get uh, racist anti civil rights activist uh, Barry
2: Goldwater as the uh, Republican nominee for president. Yeah, running against Lyndon B. Johnson, who beat Goldwater in the election. So she's elected to the New York State Legislature,
1: and she uh, has two bills that she is especially proud of, one of which established a program to help disadvantaged high schoolers go to college, and one that changed the practice of revoking tenure for teachers who got pregnant. So you can already see from the
2: get-go, at the state level, Shirley is out to work for the people. Yeah, I, I the fact that so early in her career, she's managing to accomplish things like this, that this is what she's pushing for, and this will remain the type of thing that she pushes for throughout her political career. I mean, it just warms my cold, dead heart, basically. Yeah. And I mean, and the thing
1: is, she's good at it. She's very mm-hmm. good at what she's doing. So in 1968, Shirley, who is not one to just let history pass her by,
2: she says, you know what? I want to run for Congress. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of a perfect storm of things that convince her to run because— Uh, There had been this court-ordered redistricting that had carved out a brand new Brooklyn district from her Bed-Stuy neighborhood. And the Democrats very specifically wanted to send an African-American from this new district, the 12th district, to the House of Representatives. And so she launches her primary campaign, which she said was strenuous. And she used the slogan, unbought and unbossed. And she set herself apart from her three competitors with a super personal, up-close-and-personal campaigning style. She even said, you have to let them feel you. She really got out there among the people. And in addition to getting out there among the people, she also rode around in an open truck with a loudspeaker. I love this. Yeah, she um,
1: would ride around this truck announcing... Ladies and gentlemen, this is fighting Shirley Chisholm coming through. And people loved it. Yeah. And I would also like to note that unbought and unbossed would remain her campaign slogan.
2: Yeah, what I really want after watching her documentary on Amazon, uh, which is called Shirley, no, which is called Chisholm 72, unbought and unbossed. I really want to get my hands on one of her campaign posters. Because it's got a picture of her with unbought and unbossed, and it's really cool, you know, that classic style. Well, so when we get to the general election, she's a Democrat, uh, and she's up against Republican opponent James Farmer, who's a solid opponent. Uh, I mean, he was a big figure in the civil rights movement. He was the co-founder of the Congress for Racial Equality. He was an organizer as part of the Freedom Riders. And they even had similar views on education, housing, employment, the Vietnam War. So, like, how do you pick? How how does she set herself apart? Well,
1: I mean, she did it handily because Shirley ended up winning 67 percent of the vote Uh, And with that, the distinction of being the first black woman elected to Congress. And in this case, gender was on her side. This would really be the only case that gender would be on her side. But what happened was James Farmer, this well-respected African-American man, was arguing during the campaign that, quote, women have been in the driver's seat in black communities for too long And that he was the right candidate because uh, the district needed, quote, a man's voice in Washington and called her not only a little schoolteacher, but also bossy.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, and a bossy female. Oh. So that's like total MRA language, right? Um, And Shirley's like, oh, that's how you want to play, huh? Okay. So she counters all of his sexism. By highlighting discrimination against women, she also highlights the power of women's organizations in this country, and also her own unique qualifications as being this really highly educated uh, educator. Um, and she also points out, like, "Hey, yeah, okay, black men have been able to go to Washington, but what have what have you accomplished that I can't? I can accomplish more." And it helped, too,
1: that Chisholm was from the neighborhood. I mean, she knew the people. She was out in her truck. She lived there. She grew up there. Whereas she portrayed Farmer as an outsider since he lived in Manhattan. And it also helped... That Shirley was fluent in Spanish, so she would make uh, direct appeals to the growing Hispanic population in Bed-Stuy. And it also helped, of course, that more than 80% of the neighborhood uh, were registered Democrats. So she did have
2: that on her side. But nonetheless, she won. Yeah, she won, and it's incredible. And, like, I wish I weren't as shocked— and surprised at that as I was. But through so much sminty research, I'm like, wait, a woman and a woman of color beat a man by highlighting sexism? Well, and also beating a black man, yeah, too. That broke my brain. I was like, wait, normally women are slammed for victimizing themselves if they talk about gender discrimination. and and But that that's how great she was. She even... Um, And this would be a couple years later. She would even go out door-to-door as a census worker because so many people in her Bed-Stuy neighborhood were suspicious of census workers. But there she was as that neighborhood gal going out and being able to really talk to them one-on-one. Well, that's the thing. She literally
1: walked her talk. Yeah. And she knew what she was talking about. Um, But when she ends up in Washington... She's still super active, still very outspoken and sticks out like a sore thumb. She says, it felt like I was somebody coming out of the moon because being not only African American, but also a woman and the first at that to be elected to Congress and all these guys knew that unbought and unbossed Shirley was coming their way. So they were immediately wary of what this loudmouth, bossy female might do. She might challenge the establishment. I mean, she already beat a dude in the
2: general election. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, they were right to worry. Uh, She said, I have no intention of just sitting quietly and observing, which, by the way, is the expectation of any junior uh, congressman man or woman who comes in, like, basically, oh, it's your first term, you're just gonna sit quietly and observe. She's like, okay, like, hell, I will. I intend to focus attention on the nation's problems. And so, in her first floor speech in March of 1969, she slams the Vietnam War, she vows to vote against any defense appropriation bill until the time comes, she said, when our values and priorities have been turned right side up again. And... Here she is actively championing all of those same causes that had always been so important to her. She sponsored increases in federal funding to extend the hours of daycare facilities, and she sponsored a guaranteed minimum annual income for families. She was looking out for people like her and people like the neighbors that she grew up around in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah, she also launched a special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children – which probably sounds a lot more familiar by its acronym WIC, which provides support for low-income pregnant women. And she also fought for programs like Head Start and Food Stamps. She championed a bill to ensure domestic workers received benefits. She fought for immigrants' rights, and she helped establish the National Commission on Consumer Protection and Product Safety.
2: Shirley is out there working for us. Yeah, and she was at... The forefront of overriding President Ford's veto. Now, this is so impressive. She uh, served as the primary backer of a national school lunch bill. So that harkens back to our episode on lunch ladies. Ladies. Yeah. So she was at the forefront of realizing, like, yes, nutrition in schools is important. We have to feed our kids. A teacher would probably know that. (laughs) A teacher would probably know that. Um, And she was the one. Who led her colleagues in overriding Ford's veto on that measure? Dang, yeah. she's already taken on the president. No kidding. Yeah, that little school teacher hmm. turns out to be a powerful force. And another one of her causes that was very close to her heart and that she argued very strongly for was the Equal Rights Amendment. And we are gonna talk about her efforts to get that ratified when we come right back from a quick break.
1: So the Equal Rights Amendment was written by Alice Paul and first proposed back at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1923. And it's a very basic proposed amendment stating, quote, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So, of course, Shirley was all about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, she knew she had to take this on. She wanted to support the ERA, but she also knew that when she got up and spoke about it, she would be addressing, largely, a room of white guys. And one thing that she was so stellar at, way back from her experience as an educator, but also coming up through the political machine, was being able to address her audience, to meet them where they were at. And so she talked to these guys and said, listen, we've already overcome so much in terms of religious and political prejudice in this country. We, You guys have already done so much to address, like, racial discrimination with the Civil Rights Bill in 64. It's time to tackle, quote, the most subtle, most pervasive, and most institutionalized form of prejudice that exists, sex-based discrimination, And so what she does in her speech, and we read a paper that basically dissected her rhetorical style, that she uses like a classic and classical Greek style of delivering a persuasive speech and how effective she was. Of course, spoiler, the ERA would not be ratified, but she herself was an effective tool to try to get it ratified. She spells out the ways that this Subtle, pervasive sex-based discrimination harms women and limits their opportunities. She talked about how uh, sex discrimination relegates women to low-wage jobs. It excludes them from not only selective service, but from receiving the benefits, both personal and professional, of serving their country. Her argument was not only—and this was very important— Her argument was not only that like, hey, those military jobs pay really well and women should have access to well-paying jobs. But, hey, women love their country too and women deserve the opportunity to serve that country in the best way they can and that is being a member of the military. Uh, She talked about how women were still barred from some college campuses, kept out of some night jobs. And a lot of what she was talking about revolved around that idea of benevolent sexism, the stuff, as you will recall from our last episode, that Phyllis Schlafly so badly wanted to maintain Shirley Chisholm so badly wanted to deconstruct it. Women, she basically argued, don't need these special protections and privileges. What they need is the ERA to just guarantee a level playing field.
1: Yeah, because she basically argued exploitation is exploitation. Sex has nothing to do with it. If we spell out legally, like, what you can't do, and for that reason— The amendment, in her words, was necessary to clarify the countless ambiguities and inconsistencies in the legal system. And so she explained that laws regarding women's employment, jury service, and access to education widely varied from state to state. And so the ERA, if it were ratified, would have leveled the playing field across all 50 states and get this mishmash of gendered
2: uh, laws off the books. Well, and she was basically saying, like, guys, 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 men, menfolk, friends, colleagues, countrymen, Romans, like, look, if all of this stuff is so different state to state, doesn't that just speak to how irrational some of these sexist, quote-unquote, protections are? Mm. You know, she was saying that no one would condone exploitation, but what does sex have to do with it? Working conditions and hours that are harmful to women are harmful to men. Wages that are unfair to women are unfair for men. And that's like such a modern feminist refrain that, you know, so many people make the very real important argument of feminism (laughs) doesn't only benefit women, or one type of woman. The things that feminists fight for can benefit all of us, and that includes, like, families, people that Phyllis Schlafly was saying needed to be protected. Meanwhile,
1: Phyllis Schlafly, as you'll learn about in our previous episode if you haven't listened, was fanning the flames of panic that women might, for instance, uh, be drafted to military service. This also, you know, being in a very uh, touchy time in terms of the draft, but back to fighting Shirley Chisholm, her speech was clearly effective because the day of it, the House approved the ERA by a vote of 334 to 26.
2: Yeah, but ultimately, it was not ratified by the number of states that needed to ratify it to make it the law of the land. Right, because Phyllis Schlafly led the anti-feminist
1: crusade that overturned state ratification um, of the amendment in two states and then blocked it from being ratified in three other states, leaving it short of the necessary number of states needed to make it a constitutional amendment. But again... Let's get back to fighting Shirley Chisholm.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so remember at the top of the podcast when we talked about how she was really vocal in her Bed-Stuy neighborhood about the uh, white politicians who were doing nothing to help the people of color in the neighborhood and to shut her up? They were like, let's just put you on the board of directors. And how it was like, oh, well, no, you just launched her into power. Like, thank you for giving her a voice and a platform, but you guys are going against... uh, Your best interest is trying to shut her up. Well, when she gets to Congress, her male white colleagues try to do the same thing. And they try to shut her up by assigning her to the Committee on Agriculture. And she's like, what? What? Seriously? The Committee on Agriculture. I'm from Brooklyn. Okay. So she appeals the decision to House Speaker John McCormick, uh, who just basically pats her on the head and tells her to be a good soldier. Well, because... It
1: traditionally is uh, on the junior uh, Congress people to basically take the assignment they're given. Yeah. You know, it is the kind of wait your turn thing.
2: But Shirley Chisholm is not one to wait her turn because she no. knows that no one is ever going to give it to her. Yeah. So she takes her complaint directly to the House floor. And as a result of her being incredibly vocal, uh, she is reassigned to the Veterans Affairs Committee, which again, Not her first choice, but according to a fabulous quote, she says, yeah, but there are a lot more veterans in my district than trees. So she would work with what she had. She wouldn't just take what she
1: was given, Mm -hmm. but if she saw an opportunity, even if it is something more adjacent like Veterans Affairs – she would use that to work for the people. Um, and from 1971 to 1977, she served on the Committee on Education and Labor. And also in 1971, she became a founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus. And then from 77 to 81, she served as secretary of the Democratic Caucus. And also in 77, she became the first black woman and the second woman ever to serve on the ultra-powerful Congressional Rules Committee and was a founding member of the Congressional Women's Congress. So like we said at the top of the podcast, Shirley Chisholm just has so many firsts racked up.
2: So many firsts. And and I think they're so important to note, not just by virtue of the fact that they are firsts, but to really illustrate how in it she was, that she was at the forefront of all this stuff because I feel like the early days of the Congressional Black Caucus are frequently framed as like, look at these men doing all of this stuff in the interest of the black voter. But she was right there. She's right there at the front. And to me, again, that just harkens back to our episode on Polly Murray. We're like, hey, she was one of the founding members of NOW. Okay, like now is frequently framed as like a middle class white woman thing. You know, you frequently hear about Betty Friedan. You don't hear about Polly Murray and the other women of color who were there from the get go. And so Shirley Chisholm has a similar kind of parallel story in that regard. Well, and also when we
1: see her hustle kind of outlined like this, it makes sense that, oh, yeah. She ran for president.
2: Yeah. So that timeline that we just gave you, what's missing in there is that she ran for the Democratic nomination for the presidential election of 1972. And don't think for a second that she didn't face constant hurdles. But has that ever stopped her before? No. 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 And she she knew – That there would be hurdles ahead of
1: her. She once said, I ran because most people thought the country was not ready for a black candidate and not ready for a woman candidate. Someday. It was time in 1972 to make that someday come. Yes! I love that. Shirley
2: doesn't wait for tomorrow. She makes tomorrow today. Yes! Oh, I would campaign for her today. Um, and the thing is, like we said at the top of the podcast, yes, she was proudly a woman. She was proudly African-American. But she believed that she could and should represent everyone and that everyone should have a voice in politics and that she was that candidate. She said, I'm not the candidate of black America, although I'm black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I I am a woman and I am equally proud of that. And the thing is, she's like, here I am, ready to be the candidate of the every man and the every woman. But she still had people yelling at her on both sides because she was really discouraged to find that women didn't want her to discuss Black issues and Black people didn't want her to discuss women's issues. But of course, You know, even though she was stuck between a rock and a hard place in that regard, that certainly didn't stop her from flexing her feminist muscles. One badge of hers or button that I am certainly going to have to find on eBay and pay a million dollars for shows her face in the middle of the Venus symbol with the text to represent all Americans.
1: I mean, truly like Polly Murray was so committed to intersectionality as well. Mm-hmm. She, she knew that the, that was part of her identity, and she couldn't and didn't want to divorce herself from that. Um, and the thing is, though, the deeper involved she got into politics and the further her presidential campaign went, the clearer it became to her that of the double jeopardy status— that she possessed of being both black and female, gender was what held her back more because even feminists were split over her candidacy. And this was the most heartbreaking part of that uh, Shirley Chisholm 1972 documentary where you see women like Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem start to
2: moonwalk slowly away from her. Yeah. So despite the fact that Shirley Chisholm had a ton of women and a ton of white second wave feminist women working in her campaign, ultimately, those heavy hitters like Abzug couldn't support her. And I mean, that that sums up so much about politics in general. Um, Basically, you had a lot of people arguing that they needed someone who could actually win. Um, And so despite the fact that Chisholm had founded the National Women's Political Caucus with Betty Friedan, with Bella Abzug, and with Gloria Steinem, both Abzug and Steinem threw their support behind George McGovern. Uh, he basically had very similar policies and uh, platforms as Shirley Chisholm did. And so you had people like Abzug and Steinem who were like, oh, I don't know. I mean, like, it's great that you're a woman and a woman of color and you're really educated and outspoken. But like, ooh, we think McGovern stands a way better chance of winning. And as women who are trying to get what we want for ourselves politically, we need to try to bet on the winning horse.
1: And as Robert Gottlieb, who worked on her campaign, talks about in the documentary, it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison to uh, to consider, well, if she were running in 2016, everything would be different, like how this is inconceivable that it would happen. Because as Gottlieb says, having a woman run for president was like having somebody from Mars run for president. I mean, it was Beyond inconceivable Mm -hmm. at the time.
2: Yeah, and she, Shirley Chisholm, as you might expect, was so fed up with this constant refrain. It wasn't just Steinem and Abs. Like, it was just about everybody who was reading the news or watching her campaign. She was so fed up with this attitude of, like, you're great. We're so glad you're doing this, but we need somebody who can actually win. Because she was like— look at my history. Well, yeah, because
1: no one was arguing with her politics or right. against her politics right? or against her accomplishments. They were just like, you are too woman and too black for this to happen.
2: Yeah, it's, it's not realistic because think of the rest of America, but also like think of how much she'd already overcome against so many odds. But it seems like
1: uh, oftentimes in uh, our society— we love a trailblazer up to a point. Yeah. And we'll take one trailblazer, but we don't want the floodgates to open, <laughs> you know? And it feels like there's a lot of that going on where it's like, listen, you've already made history. You've, you're have the first wo- black woman to win a seat in Congress, you know? Yeah, so, aren't you, aren't you so good with relax, that? So relax. So relax. But Shirley Chisholm did the opposite. And I loved— Watching footage of her, so angry, so, Mm -hmm. and just so, just over it, where (laughs) she would say, If
2: you can't support me or you can't endorse me, get out of my way. Yeah, because she had voters, she had reporters, she had all of these people asking her about, like, why are you staying in? You're just taking votes away from McGovern. Because the whole thing, there was, like, a huge— just the same way as in this election cycle, there were a huge number of Republicans vying for the nomination. There were a huge number of Democrats in the primary race at the time. And so basically, you've got people saying, hey, your politics— Not that much different from an Edward Muskie. Not that much different from a George McGovern. You should probably just drop out. Like, you've done a great job. Your politics are on point. You know, you're very outspoken and educated uh but i mean white america i don't know if they can take you so let let george mcgovern win and get those delegates so that he can go to the convention and clinch the nomination right which
1: absolutely echoes um a lot of things that bernie sanders supporters heard mm-hmm. in this past democratic primary um and also this is this is rather reminiscent of well as well she had to sue in order to participate in debates
2: because people were that quick to dismiss her she you know that they didn't even invite her to debates and she became there's footage in this documentary you guys have to watch it um from an a television interview that has several of the uh, democratic contenders including chisholm on and she becomes visibly Fed up when the interviewer asked her which opponent she would support, and it's not that that language is like anti Shirley Chisholm specifically, because you hear that in every race. Like, hey, you know,
1: well, everyone is a, still asks every Republican politician, "Would you will you really support Donald Trump?"
2: Yeah, well, yes, and so, but I think at that point, by the time this interviewer asks her the question, she's like, "Seriously." I am still a contender. Like, I'm still in this to win this. And the thing is, though, I mean, this was a this was a dangerous time and a dangerous race. George Wallace, the segregationist politician, was shot five times mm-hmm. and paralyzed from the waist down. And that's when he ultimately dropped out of the race. Uh, Shirley Chisholm herself had several attempts on her life and in the documentary – where she's interviewed years and years later, she still can't talk about it. It's still so painful to her that people hated her enough to want to take her life. There was one man who was following her around with a knife, but luckily her security team kept him from getting too close to her. But even within the Congressional Black Caucus, which you would assume would be
1: fully supporting her, surely... Found herself an outsider because some caucus members had wanted to rally behind black male candidates from each state who wouldn't be expected to win, but at the convention, those delegates would be so scattered that they could then leverage those collective delegates for those black candidates across those many states uh, on behalf of platforms that would. Um, help black the black population like black voters so uh, but they couldn't decide like which ones essentially that they wanted to uh to put up for Mm -hmm. the nomination so shirley was like hey, listen, let's not wait for someday. Let's make it today. I'm going to
2: run. I'll do it. Yeah, at least she was consistent, right? Like yeah. Let's stop waiting around. Um, And, you know, she said, I am looking to no man walking this earth for approval of what I'm doing. Because basically this journalist had asked her, like, uh, you know, some of your Congressional Black Caucus colleagues, some of those dudes are a little sore that you're throwing your hat in the ring. And that's when she was like, I... Don't don't care. Um, And, you know, a lot of those black caucus members were resentful. They thought she'd sell out black interests for women's interest. Um, A lot of them considered her coalition building as betrayal. You know, she worked with women, black and white. She worked with Hispanics. She worked with white liberals and welfare recipients. And a lot of her black colleagues were like, what are you doing? You're leaving, you're leaving your people behind. And in her viewpoint, it's like, no, I'm. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm five steps ahead of you. Catch up. Yeah. Like I'm bringing people together. Cause like I have already said, gentlemen, I am everyone's president.
1: And at one point her, uh, congressional black caucus colleague, representative Bill Clay questioned her sanity During a press conference, it was getting to that level of sexism. And as Shirley later said, black male politicians are no different from white male politicians. This woman thing is so deep. I've found it in this campaign if I ever knew it before.
2: Yeah, and a lot of her male Congressional Black Caucus colleagues ended up throwing their support, just like Steinem and Abzug, behind people like George McGovern. Um, and that was for a lot of reasons. It went back to the whole belief of, like, we need someone who can actually win. But as a lot of those men said on camera in interviews in the documentary, like, we need to hitch our wagon to a star. And if we are going to rise in the ranks of, you know, either our party or on the national political stage, we need to share the spotlight with the guy who's going to win. That operative word, of course, being, like, That guy. Right. Who's going to win. Well, and Shirley
1: did not give up all the way to the Democratic National Convention. She knew she was not going to win the nomination, but she also knew the potential leveraging power of delegates. So she showed up with 152 delegates, which was more than either Ed Muskie or Hubert Humphrey. And... She was really hoping for a deadlocked convention in which she could use her delegates, say, like, listen, I will break the tie. I'll throw my delegates to you if uh, you will provide a black running mate. She also wanted to negotiate for a woman to serve in the cabinet and a Native American to serve as
2: secretary of the interior. Yeah, talk about an intersectional politician because there's footage of her, again, saying we need a Native American person as the secretary of the interior because these were their lands. Yeah. This was their land. Should they not have a representative in government who can have a say? But unfortunately,
1: George McGovern had put together enough delegates uh, to where he, he didn't need Shirley's. So she didn't really have the chance to break that deadlock and negotiate. And much later in life, she would lament the lack of true democracy, saying that it's more deals and bargains than what people assume democracy is.
2: Yeah. So here's this powerful, driven woman who, as her record clearly shows, wants to act on behalf of families, wants to help the average American worker, um, wants to do right by her people in, in her country. And she is getting to this national stage and realizing, oh, the track that I've been on where I'm trying to help people of all colors and genders and backgrounds, that's not really what this is about. It's about It's about that leverage and about making those deals in back rooms. And and it really seemed like that was distasteful to her. Yeah, because it it seems at least that
1: Shirley Chisholm was never out for power or personal gain. She Mm -hmm. was out for the people. Yeah. Legitimately out for the people. Hence her campaign tagline of being unbought and unbossed. And the thing that I was really heartened to learn after her uh, failed campaign, was that she was still highly respected. She Mm -hmm. had made an impression on the American public. She returned to Congress a popular figure. In a 1974 Gallup poll, she was listed as one of the top ten most
2: admired women in America, ahead of Jackie O and Coretta Scott King. Yeah, she was tied in sixth place with Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Was a popular woman, you know, she she her love for the people and her desire to do right by them, I think, really attracted her a lot of fans. But the thing is, at the same time that Phyllis Schlafly is pushing the right wing evangelical Christian bent to the Republican Party. Shirley is becoming disillusioned by that hard right turn. And in 1982, she announces she will not seek reelection. And one of the reasons was because of the country's conservative turn with the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan. And she was also at this point super fed up with being misunderstood. She said she felt that her fellow African-American politicians did not understand all of those coalition-building efforts that she had started and maintained over the years because she was like, listen, guys, we can't do this by ourselves, nor can white people do it by themselves. Like, if we share politics and political ideology, we have to work together. And I just think that every step of the way she felt continued to face these hurdles in her career and by the time the country got so conservative she was like all right i'm out i got to i got to tap out yeah i mean but she we can't
1: forget that she remained in congress and was reelected up until she was finally like I don't want to be reelected again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, she was a very successful state politician um, and she remained active even after she stepped down. She helped co-found the national political Congress of black women. She taught at Mount Holyoke college in 1983. Uh, She also campaigned for Jesse Jackson's presidential bids in 84 and 88. And when Bill Clinton nominated her as ambassador to Jamaica, she was like, "Thanks, no, thanks, uh, because she, for health reasons she she didn't want to take it on, and she ended up in a classic move. She settled in Florida <laughs> like you do, uh, and from there, she wrote and lectured and until she died on January first, two thousand and five yeah, I
2: mean, I, I am so grateful for what she did for voters what she did for americans what she did for women and women of color the fact that she was able to so successfully be on the national stage and be so vocal um but it does break my heart that she felt so unwelcome finally in politics that she was like i'm done because shirley chisholm was obviously not the type of person to back down so the fact that politics at that time were becoming so hostile that she was like uh I'll I'll just go lecture, and and get out of here. Like that's that's very telling.
1: Yeah, I mean because if she were sitting here in the podcast studio today, I would a, freak I out. Would, I would flip out. Um, and then I have a hunch she <laughs> would be a little mystified at how celebratory we are because she said in her autobiography, quote. That I am a national figure because I was the first person in 192 years to be at once a congressman, black, and a woman proves, I would think, that our society is not yet either just or free. And that is the exact reason why she says repeatedly that she doesn't want to be remembered solely as being the
2: first African-American woman elected to U.S. Congress. I think she would be so much more excited to hear us talk about her record of advocating for uh, domestic workers, for immigrants, for women of all colors, um, for education and children in this country. Um, You know, that's where she found her power and inspiration. Well, and one final quote of hers that this makes me
1: think of is uh, sort of another way that she has phrased the whole thing of, you know, I want to be remembered as someone who fought for change in the 20th century. At one point, she also said, I want to be remembered as a woman who was herself. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, she, she never compromised at all who she was. And, oh, oh man, if you could just get, if only you could like bottle up Shirley Chisholm's character, you know? Yeah.
2: And sell it i'd take it like a vitamin every day oh as would i and so i have really high hopes for this biopic that, oh yeah that anika nani rose is supposedly working on she's set to produce and star in it and i will definitely eat that up if and when it comes to theaters absolutely um so listeners We want to know
1: from you, had you known about Shirley Chisholm? Are you listening to this episode in Brooklyn, possibly in Bed-Stuy, and feeling a whole new significance for where you are? I hope you are. So let us know your thoughts. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
2: I have a letter here from Grace in response to our flight attendant episode. Uh, She said, I was a flight attendant for just under two years, from early 2004 through late 2005. I was happy to hear you speak about the profession because it is ultra-glamorized, but is not at all what people think it is. Here are just a few things I have to say about my experience. Number one, sexual harassment. I'm average looking at best, and I got inappropriate comments from passengers as well as pilots. I even had one pilot send me a... penis pic on an overnight. I told him if he ever contacted me again, I would get him fired and blacklisted. Sadly, no idea if I could actually do that. Our airline didn't have weight limits technically, but they absolutely did not hire larger people, and we were expected to wear heels when working, even in airports. Heels are so super practical for people who are trained in CPR to save your life, doing heavy lifting, etc. Number two, schedule. You have to bid for your desired schedule. This means you work a different schedule every single month, and when you don't have much seniority, you work long trips, you're gone for four to five days and nights at a time, and never get a regular schedule. It does improve with time on the job, but most people don't last more than a year. Number three, pay. I made under 18,000 my first year, barely more my second, and I didn't sleep at my home for over 250 days a year. Pay is based on hours in the plane. Neither pilots or flight attendants are making an hourly wage until the plane door is closed and they stop getting paid when the door opens. Yeah, while you're boarding and deplaning, we aren't getting paid. This also means the time we take to to get to the airport early, which is required to check all of our safety equipment, etc., is time we aren't getting paid. When on overnights, we get a super small stipend to help with food costs. Number four, free flights. Depending on your airline, you don't really fly for free. I got discounted flights, and the rates were different depending on what airline you flew. You were always standby, and they oversell all flights, and I had to dress up. On top of which, I didn't make nearly enough money that I could afford to travel, even at a discount. Number five, turnover. Because the schedule sucks, The pay sucks. You are gone all the time, etc. Most people don't last longer than a year. Seems like a lot of companies do it on purpose because flight attendants make so little their first five years on the job that it keeps labor costs lower for them. And this is just scratching the surface for me. I know people who stayed with it, and once on the job about five years, you have more seniority, which improves the job quite a bit. I couldn't do it. I was in a relationship and the travel made it hard. We've been together 11 years now. He rules. And couldn't deal with what felt like a really abusive job. If you haven't already, please check out The Passenger Shaming on Instagram. It's a riot. Love your show. Thanks for your time. And thanks for your insights, Grace. I have a letter here from Bree subject line, Trans
1: Suits. She writes, Your recent show about pantsuits struck a particular chord with me. Finding a suit as a transgender woman is hard. First, we have to fight the societal norm that all trans women wear skirts or dresses 24-7, type transgender pantsuits into Google, and my first three results are from a site about dealing with transgender victims of assault, suits for trans men, and a lawsuit about a trans girl in a locker room. That's not helpful at all, Google. Then, we have to fight other trans people saying that we aren't trans enough because we want to wear a suit. And finally, we have to find someone who is actually decent at fitting a suit onto our larger frames. Shout out to my tall and plus-sized lady friends. And that probably involves custom tailoring, which is just another expense. There's a lot of info for trans women on how to be hyper feminine, but very little for those of us who want to express a different side of our femininity. Our society is starting to understand that cisgender women can be whatever they want to be, so hopefully we can start to admit that a trans woman's favorite color doesn't have to be pink. Embry also uh, offered a helpful P.S. in response to our episode on Period Tracker apps. She said, using natural family planning was the best decision my wife and I ever made, enabling us to discover some medical problems that would have gone unnoticed otherwise, but showed up when we tracked her cycle. I would definitely give a shout out to the Creighton method, natural family planning as the super cheap method, nothing more than a piece of paper and pen required. Well, thank you, Brie, for all that insight and love back to you. And listeners, if you've got anything to share with us, stuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about fighting Shirley Chisholm, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.